Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2012 AWP conference in Chicago. The recording features Brian Broder and Carl Phillips. Hello and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder and I'm here at the 2012 AWP annual conference in Chicago with poet Carl Phillips. Carl Phillips is the author of 11 books of poetry, including most recently Double Shadow, Speak Low, Quiver of Arrows, Selected Poems, 1986-2006, to and Riding Westward. He's won the Theodore Rethke Memorial Foundation Poetry Prize, the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Male Poetry, the Lambda Literary Award, and has been a finalist for the National Book Award. Phillips is Professor of English and Afro- African and Afro-American Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, where he also teaches in the Creative Writing Program. Carl Phillips, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Um, I'd like to start off with a poem, if you don't mind. Um, would you read Radiance versus Ordinary Life? Sure. Thanks. <clears throat> Radiance versus Ordinary Light. Meanwhile, the sea moves uneasily, like a man who suspects what the room reels with as he rises into it, his violation, his own. He touches the bruises at each shoulder and, on his chest, the larger bruise, star-shaped, a flawed star or hand, though he remembers no hands, has tried, can't remember, that kind of rhythm to it. Even to the roughest surf, there's a rhythm findable, which is why we keep coming here, to find it, or that's what we say. We dive in, and, as usual, the swimming feels like that swimming the mind does in the wake of transgression, how the instinct to panic at first slackens that much more quickly if you don't look back. Regret, like pity, changes nothing really, we say to ourselves, and less often to each other, each time swimming a bit farther, leaving the shore the way the water, in its own watered-of-course version of semaphore, keeps leaving the subject out, flashing, why should it matter now, and why, why shouldn't it, as the waves beat harder, hard against us, until that's how we like it, I'll break your heart, break mine. Wonderful, thank you. Um, like many of your poems, this one explores the tenuous dichotomies between mind and body, intimacy and history, control and powerlessness, sex and the spiritual life. Um, these dichotomies have stuck with you through, throughout your career. Does a poet choose his subjects and themes, or are they chosen for him? Um, <clears throat> maybe it depends on the type of poet you are. Um, for me, they feel chosen. I'm not able to just... Um, randomly decide I'm now going to write about, say, baseball or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel as if, you know, in the same way that we develop our own symbology, um, that there are certain things that at least haunt certain kinds of poets. And I'm, that, that's the answer I give to myself most of the time. Sometimes I think it just means I only have a handful of things to write about. <laughs> but so did Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good company. Um, there's also the sense in uh, in Radiance versus Ordinary Light that uh, sex in the body cannot escape transgressions, bruises, regret. Um, yet the speaker, through his awareness and acceptance of these things, achieves a kind of freedom in that final sentiment, I'll break your heart, you know, break mine. Um, this seems a trend in your work. The more you write and publish about sex, the body, and desire, the more affirmatively you view these subjects. Would, would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. I think <clears throat> it might have to do with how I began writing, struggling with a lot of those things and struggling with the idea of feeling guilty about one's identity 
or having been raised to think that you should feel guilty. Mm. And, um, and I think somehow maybe just getting older, um, and ways in which society has changed, um, or maybe, you know, getting older and realizing maybe it's too late anyway to change. So, <laughs> so perhaps you should start embracing your demons instead of wrestling with them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a danger to that too. You could, you could sort of give sway to them entirely. So it seems an ongoing negotiation mm-hmm. with what, what troubles a person mm-hmm. and who they are. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, through various forms and tones, uh, the speaker of your poems over the years has remained remarkably constant, I think, anyway. Uh, how closely does this speaker resemble your own personality? Um, maybe a more interesting question is, how much has the creation of the self or, or those selves on the page influenced and informed your identity outside of your poems? That's a really interesting question, um, because I, I, mean, I guess I think that well, first of all, I guess I think all poems are in some way autobiographical, mm-hmm. just through the lens of our own experience. That's how we see the world. Um, and, but I used to, I used to think that the poems were reflective of who I was in ways that I didn't understand. Um, and they, I once described them as advanced bulletins from the interior because I feel I'd learned something about myself that I wasn't yet ready to think about, but it would be there in the poem. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, maybe five books into all of this, I started wondering if it's possible that you can start writing towards something that you start becoming that isn't exactly who you are. And it's very troubling to me, actually, um, because if I'm going to write all these transgressive types of things, does that mean I become transgressive? (laughs) Or am I indeed transgressive and the poems have just started to reflect it? I don't know. Um, But to answer the first part of the question... I think that they're, the poems are very reflective of part of who I am. But people are always surprised, for example, to learn that I have a sense of humor. And they <laughs> think, yeah, I do. I, I don't, for some reason, include that on the page. That's not something I wrestle with. Um, but, um, or someone, some people have said they were afraid to meet me because of reading the poems. They don't specify the fear. But, um, I think that the poems might seem less approachable um, sometimes and more severe, but that's just the nature of the subject matter, I think. And um, anyone who actually lived that way would be a mess. So, <laughs> so if you uh, if you met this speaker in a dark alley, it might not be a. <laughs> I'd be intrigued, uh-huh. <laughs> but I would expect trouble. So, but it might be a trouble I could learn from. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, <clears throat> In your more recent books, you've uh, begun experimenting with line, uh, employing drop lines and lines of a much longer length. Where does this formal restlessness come from? Is it simply an effort to keep things interesting for yourself? Or is this experimentation tied to some larger psycho- psychological, emotional, or spiritual seeking? <laughs> I like these questions. Um, well, these when these things happen, they're things that just start happening. I'll notice... Um, in the same way, looking at this poem that you had me read, I realized I, I don't seem to write poems that are anywhere near this length anymore. They're much shorter. But that is never a conscious decision. Um, is it reflective of a different kind of restlessness? Probably, but um, not one I've analyzed. And I resist going to 
therapy because I don't want to understand. I just want to have things manifest themselves for better and worse. <laughs> um, but, but there is, um, I do think there's an increased restlessness in my life in general. Um, it's weird. Um, I find one of the challenges of getting older, which I guess I can say now that I'm in my fifties mm -hmm. is that, you know, how do you reach a point where your life is fairly stable and, um, you have the things that you would like to have in life, but you still believe in a kind of restlessness that is productive for poetry mm -hmm. and also for an imaginable, an imaginative life, um, off the page. And that's, that's what I'm still wondering about. Um, I think for some people it becomes a midlife crisis of some kind, or they get a sports car or something. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I found a person I was speaking of earlier today. Um, when I met Tom Gunn, he had just turned 70 and he changed my life in many ways because of his sensibility. I was interested in how he still managed at 70 to be a very restless person and an edgy, um, frighteningly edgy, um, to me in my naive state at the time. And, and yet I admired it. Um, and so I'd like to be able to do that and also be able to keep surprising myself in poems. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how old were you when you, when you first met Gunn? Well, <clears throat> that was in 2000. So perhaps you could do the math. I yeah. was born in 59. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that <laughs> equals. 60, 40. I guess it was 41. Yeah. I can do the math. <laughs> yes. That's great. And what were the circumstances of, uh, of your oh, meeting? He came to St. Louis, um, for a three week residency where I was teaching. And, um, uh, so I was sort of his, uh, guide and to make sure I was the director of the writing program at the time. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. And he, anything from, he showed up to speak to my undergraduate poetry survey class in full motorcycle leather regalia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was great. Um, or he, um, got really drunk at a party <laughs> and the next morning when I went to pick him up to take him to lunch or whatever, he wanted me to look at the back of his head because he said he'd fallen while taking his boots off and hit his head. And he said, I think there's a lot of blood on the floor. And indeed there was, and he had this like huge cut in his head like you're 70 years old and it's not that I admired those things, but I thought that's pretty in some strange way. I thought it was pretty cool that, Oh, he's not thinking I'm 70. I should go to bed at eight yeah. in the evening. I should never drink and I should dress like a poet, mm -hmm. um, whatever that is. So I admired that. <clears throat> I think it was shortly after meeting him that I got my tattoos. Uh huh. Great. So, yeah. So, and the whole, all the, Hell broke loose after that. <laughs> so, so he was the uh, he was the gateway drug. Meeting, I guess so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, I was hoping we could talk directly about your writing process. Um, in a 2010 interview with Jeffrey Brown, you mentioned that your work uh, you work first with paper and pencil, gradually moving to the computer, and that each digital draft must be printed out and assigned a number. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, could you speak to this process? Well. What more do you want me to say? <laughs> uh, I think it's, I think um, the uh, the numbered system is is interesting. What sort of uh, you know what, what got you started on that and, uh, and and I well before I even had my first book, I would keep all these handwritten drafts, but I 
quickly started seeing the often, um, well, first of all, I was interested in the sequence, like how I would get someplace. So I would finish a poem, then I think, now how did this even begin? And I go back and it, would, it was just interesting to me um, that I often ended up nowhere near where I started. And, and so I just started doing this numbering thing um, so I could track it. Yeah. And so it's actually even more um, neurotic, perhaps, um, because it's just regular, regular numbers, whatever the word is for those, for the handwritten drafts. Yeah. But then for the typed ones, it's Roman numeral okay. numbers. <laughs> um, and so that, as if I couldn't tell which ones were the typed <laughs> ones, and but that's just my little system. Um, and then there's a date when there's the final one, and... And I've always done this, never with any idea um, that anyone should care about it. Right. But it was only recently that um, some place purchased my papers, and um, and they were fascinated with this and thought, no one does this, no one organizes all the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, and but I guess, and I guess maybe that's part of why I started doing it. That I've always been interested in other poets. Drafts, you know, you look at Elizabeth Bishop's drafts yeah. of one arc or something like that. Um, and I just, or, you know, the wasteland. Mm -hmm. And I love seeing all the markings. And so you can kind of track partly where the mind was going. So yeah. it's just a little hobby of mine. Uh -huh. <laughs> little tick. Right. Organizing your collection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. But even things like... Um, you know, I, I write notes in books all the time, and but I have always been fascinated checking library books out in the old days when people did that. Um, and you see, do it, oh, do they? Okay. <laughs> um, and I thought, it's interesting, like, when somebody puts an exclamation point next to something, like, why was that exciting to this person? Um, and then um, once, Robert Pinsky, he was recommending some... English Renaissance poet to me. And he said, oh, take this um, anthology, just keep it. Um, and, you know, this is a great anthology. Williams, I think, is the editor. And when I got home, I saw that it had Frank Bedart's name in it. Wow. Yeah. And it had belonged to Frank, who had given it to Robert or lent it to him, whatever. But it has, Frank, it has certain lines underlined, and Frank has written little things in it. And it's fascinating to me. But at that time, I kind of hadn't met Frank Bedart, but I've always idolized his, his work. But he seemed to always want to underline the things about suffering and moral, you know, dilemma. And I thought, this is perfect. Of course he was drawn to this mm -hmm. as a graduate student. <laughs> so so that's not to say that I also have a, a number of my books or something. Mm -hmm. But I like that I, I keep books that I've written in mm -hmm. just because I think, for my own knowledge, it's kind of interesting to, or to reread. Sometimes I'll reread, as I recently did, um, Middlemarch. And I hadn't read it since I was 25. Yeah. It was interesting to see the passages I had underlined and was interested. And they, actually, I'm still, I oh, thought good. I was on target. Okay. So I good. still like these passages. <laughs> so you might even like that, like that 25-year-old version of yourself. If uh -huh. you, if you... Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and in terms of, um, so when, when you are drafting and, um, and, uh, do you ever, you know, if you get frustrated with a draft and then go back and say, oh, you know, drafts, you know, 35 through 52 are just awful. I need to go back to 34 or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. And then yeah. And that's partly why 
I keep all of that um, because it feels like it's gotten out of control. And um, and that recently happened when I was putting a new manuscript together. There was a poem that's gone through all these different versions, and I still thought something was not quite right. Yeah. And went back to a really early draft and kept only three lines. And uh-huh. the whole latest version is only three lines. Uh-huh. So, oh. And I was, I was kind of interested in... Um, they appear at very different parts of the poem. So um, I feel like I might have stumbled into yet another kind of form, mm-hmm. formal change, these short things that are highly associative between lines. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, your, co- your poems can be classified as meditative, uh, even ph- philosophical. Um, is poetry for you uh, a mode of inquiry? Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Um, it's I I know I've used the word wrestle a couple times. I think of it as this, the page is a space across which to wrestle with unanswerable questions. Um, and uh, I was just on a Dickinson panel earlier today, and she's very much like that. Um, she keeps returning to things. Be- I think precisely because they can't be. It's the kind of thing where you think you you've found the answer only to find at the end of the poem that that wasn't quite it, which generates the next poem, Mm -hmm. for me, anyway. Um, So, yeah, I... It took a while. I've always thought that um, if I had to describe myself, I'd be a philosophical poet, as opposed to what I think people initially thought, which was a sexual poet and a poet of sexual identity and race identity. Um, but I think all those fall beneath the umbrella of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, since you mentioned, uh, identity, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it is, it is interesting too, looking over this, uh, this, you know, uh, growing, uh, body of work that you're, that you're producing, um, uh, very prolific poet that you are, um, you know, it, it seems like this, these issues of identity are sort of, I don't know, somehow beneath the surface, they're not major concerns mm-hmm. or at least outright concerns. Um, so could you could you talk about you know how kind of identity informs your work or whether it's even important in a sense or yeah it's important but I think I think sometimes people misunderstand how importance of that kind should manifest itself mm-hmm. in a poem um, you know it's certainly important to how I see the world and my sensibility that I'm black or more to the point that I'm a mix of black and white mm-hmm. and that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. I'm sure those things I know in terms of growing up, they've been things that have made me feel isolated um, and different in ways that in those days people didn't quite know how to answer. Um, and um, in those days being the days of my childhood. And But there's a certain point at which certainly in terms of race, for me, there's a point at which I've been this all my life. And um, and I don't know if I've been gay all my life. I haven't understood that, but I certainly have for most of my life. And so that becomes second nature. So the way I've explained it sometimes is, you know, part of my daily ritual is to walk my dog. When I'm walking down the street, I don't think, I'm a gay black man walking <laughs> my dog. If anything, I'm a person who lives in this neighborhood, or I'm a dog owner. Um, and uh, so I feel like 
In the first couple of books of mine, I had just come out. Well, in the first book, I was actually married to a woman and had just come out. And so it makes sense to me that I would be very obsessed with this, in particular, sexual identity. Mm -hmm. And then that was true for the second book because I had begun what would be common 18-year relationship with another man. And I didn't see any examples of stability in relationships between men. And so I think that second book, Cortege, came out of investigating the possibilities for that. But then, you know, things settle down and you move on to these other things that you've been thinking about all your life, too. Like, you know, what is out there? What is faith? What is, and the deeper interrelationship, what is um, fidelity? What's betrayal um, and trust? So, um, yeah, I've had people say, well, you know, you really aren't uh, a black poet. You know, you don't write about black things. And I think really, like love and, <laughs> and desire and death, I mean, I think those things are are issues that black people experience. Yeah. And similarly, um, people have said, you know, it seems there are fewer, fewer gay poems. Right. And I don't know. I, I guess they're gay to me. Right. They're, <laughs> but I, I've never wanted to. Um, I, I would like people to be able to read my poems in the way that, you know, when I read poems by people like John Donne, I don't think about whether he's straight or gay when he's writing about love. Even if he's mentioning a woman, I, I, it's the way he writes about desire. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, it's what I love about Robert Hayden, that yes, he can decide to write a poem um, that speaks specifically to African-American history. Yes. Mm -hmm. But he can also, in something like um, Those Winter Sundays, it, it's so much about childhood, missed opportunities, not realizing what you should have been grateful for, for in your father. Um, that kind of regret of adulthood, that's not bound to any particular identity. Also, that's a great a long deal. answer. Yeah, no, that's that's not a long answer at all. I mean, it's a complicated you know, yeah. question. Um, yeah. Uh, you're, you're also, I think, hinting at that um, uh, distinction or at least claim of, uh, you know, whether a poet says, I am a black poet or I am, you know, a, you know, I just want to be a poet. And this thing about, um, you know, County Cullen yeah. saying, you know, you know, I don't want to be a black poet. I want to be a poet. And then, and uh -huh. then Langston Hughes saying, you know, mm -hmm. what's, what's black is beautiful. What's wrong, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not just, they're not merely incidental, these identity markers, but, right. but there's some, I think people try to tie you down to certain particular ones. And, um, well, you mentioned one earlier, you know, yeah. dog owner. They don't say, uh, oh, Carl Phillips, he's a, he's a dog owner. Poet. That's right. That's right. And and I understand that people first deal with what they see. They see color. Um, perhaps they they see sexuality, sexual orientation. But, but everyone, even within these categories, everyone's so different. And um, it's a vexed issue in poetry though I find because it's not just the world but within the world of poetry where I would have thought that there was a little bit broader perspective there are still these kinds of ideas of who's doing what they should be doing for the race or for you know queer um, poetry and I feel like what we should be doing is whatever it is that we are able to do and if we look at enough different voices we start to see what black poetry is or what 
queer poetry is and you know um it was, it was brought out in the dickinson panel today that dickinson only referred to the civil war maybe in four or five mm -hmm. poems that doesn't mean that she wasn't patriotic or thinking about politics or you know in the way she just wasn't doing it in the way whitman was yeah. but i feel like having those two sensibilities beside each other gives us a very interesting portrait mm -hmm. of the psychology of that period mm -hmm. so um yeah and doesn't uh i mean doesn't one's fidelity uh have to be to to language after all rather than subject matter or i would think so mm -hmm. and and to how we it's it's not even how we can use it or how we want to is how we can i say that to my students all the time sometimes they seem like they're trying to decide what kind of poet to be mm -hmm. and i think this maybe sadder truth is we're the the kind of poet we are already there's not much we can do about it mm -hmm. so um we can admire things in others but we're just stuck with ourselves <laughs> um it, switching gears a little, uh, in essays and interviews, uh, you've cited ancient Greek and Roman writers, especially Homer, Cicero, and Tacitus as early influences. Um, do you still see these poets uh, affecting your writing now? In different ways. Uh, Homer more now than before, because I, I realize the last few books I've been thinking a lot about power and um, the dynamics of power within um, human relationships between two people. Um, and or three um, and I started thinking about this because of the essay I can't think of the title of it that Simone Weil wrote about the Iliad okay. um, and I read that a few years ago and she sees all of it helped me sort of reread the Iliad in different ways and the way power struggles manifest themselves and um, and so it's made me, well, I happen to teach Homer most years to freshmen, and but it's made me start to see that more, um, those issues. With the other people you mentioned, Thucydides, Cicero, I think the influence was more in terms of syntax and the way sentences seem to be used to manipulate audience, um, and which is also a kind of power, a kind of who holds the power through language and if you can sustain a sentence long enough um, it kind of puts your reader um, at least if you're an orator it puts your listeners in a state of suspense um, mm -hmm. so but I don't I wouldn't say I I turn to them in a daily way I also feel though that the Greek tragedies the which are to me what I want my poems to do the way they wrestle again with these things that can't be resolved um, you know Antigone fails her brother if she doesn't give him a burial but if she gives him a burial she's a traitor to the state right. and right. so there's no winning um, mm -hmm. and and what to do with that moral conundrum mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely uh, what is that what is it like teaching Homer to freshmen um, I find it exciting I think they do they when I say Homer, I only mean the Iliad. Yeah. Well, I don't have time for the Odyssey, uh -huh. um, <laughs> which to me is like a trip to Disney World or something. <laughs> but um, they think, oh, he's chosen the more boring text, and it's uh -huh. going to be just spears and wounds and things like that. <laughs> Shields. And there's a lot of that. But, mm -hmm. but um, 
it's exciting to see them see how much is in the Iliad. I mean, there's even a recipe. I mean, there's there are tender love scenes. There's sex, um, and uh, and yeah, a lot of violence. But the way violence is treated is often so lovely, and which in itself sets up a strange moral dilemma for me. Um, what does it mean if it's this beautiful yeah. to describe somebody's head rolling off? And, right. um, but also, it gives them a chance to. We it's a moral course in disguise. It's just called, it's not called that, it's called something like classics in translation, but yeah. but it's really a morals course. And so we investigate war, the morality of war. And um, so it's fun. It's the closest I've gotten to, because these are freshmen in the first semester. Yeah. So, yeah. and I used to be a high school teacher of Latin, and it was always exciting to watch the freshmen come into language. They suddenly realized there was this language they didn't know, and now here they were reading it, writing it. And the same way, to see someone discover something like the Iliad and actually think, wow, there's really something here. Mm -hmm. um, I feel as if I've done some kind of duty. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they return, like in senior year before graduation, and say, you know, I, I still have my copy of the Iliad. Is, that's good. That's right. If you didn't yeah. sell it back to the bookstore, <laughs> might open it again too mm -hmm. <laughs> look back at your notes in yeah, uh, 25 years exactly <laughs> yeah um do you have a particular translation that you that you prefer or of uh... well i do but i don't know if it's that i prefer it as much as that the students um it works best and which is just the um fitzgerald sure. um but there's something particularly poetic about it i tried the Lattimore one time and they pointed out and they're right it takes longer to read that translation. The lines are longer, and I don't know. They like the idea that they can flip through rather quickly. Mm -hmm. you know, but it might be the way the book is shaped and the and the font. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's true of the Bernard Knox translation too. It takes longer to read, and so the last thing I want them to think is it's a fat book and it's going to be a drudge. Yeah. So, and um, the Fitzgerald has pictures every right. once in a while they seem to like that it's a nice little reprieve yeah <laughs> yeah so it's a you know it's a stupid reason to choose a translation but it's teachable uh -huh. so. uh -huh. um uh could you talk briefly about assembling the essays and interviews in coin of the realm um how did that book come about uh did gray wolf approach you with the idea for a collection of essays or um or or yeah what happened what was the genesis of it oh it was agony um it was um <laughs> Well, what happened actually was I then was teaching at Warren Wilson and part of doing that is that you have to give a craft lecture uh -huh. and also the same thing was happening at Breadloaf. So I had a bunch of these just lying around that I had done and then Barbara Rass was going to start Trinity Press and do something like the U Michigan series. Yeah. Yep. Um, Great series. Yeah. yeah. And I guess maybe Ellen Brian Voigt has suggested me for that because she'd heard these craft talks and thought these would be good. Um, and so I was supposed to do that, but then it was taking a while for the press to get off the ground, mm -hmm. I guess. And, and in the meantime, um, but I wanted them once I, this idea had been planted, in my mind, I wanted them to be published. So yeah. I was at Grey Wolf at the time already and, and wondered if they would have any interest. And they looked and 
said, yeah, this would be great. Um, the problem was they said, you know, but there needs to be some kind of unifying kind of essay, you know, maybe to end it all. And that was the problem <laughs> that I hate writing prose and I'd only sort of done the others like because of my fear of Alan Voigt. And, <laughs> um, and, and plus they had pointed out, well, these sound like lectures. Now you have to turn them into essays. So that was laborious. And then I couldn't come up with anything. Um, and then like a week before they said, you have to, you have to, I wrote the coin of the realm title essay. That was the other problem. There was no title for the essay book. <laughs> and then I had this poem, Coin of the Realm, mm -hmm. and that, but I never really liked it enough to put it in it, or it hadn't fit, I guess, in a collection of poems. And, um, and somehow just started writing towards that. And it, so it worked out. Mm -hmm. But So, no, I would never have been able to do it if I started from nothing and thought, oh, I have some essays to write. Mm -hmm. But I, I only can do that sort of thing if there's an assignment, but in sort of little drips and drabs. Yeah. So I don't realize I'm actually writing an essay. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just very, um, and every time I'm always down to the wire. Um, it brings back all my the reasons I hated school. <laughs> just hated it, and um, I hated papers. Mm -hmm. I hate them so much I don't assign them to my students. Oh, is I don't. Right? I don't want to read them. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Then you don't have to read them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's smart. <laughs> um, finally, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, you mentioned um, the briefer poems that that you're mm -hmm. writing. Yeah. Um, well, I see. I resist this whole thing of being prolific, mm -hmm. which you mentioned, but maybe it's a demon I should embrace. Mm -hmm. um, so I just turned in. A new manuscript um, called Silver Chest. It's all one word, Silver Chest, and um, and that has a lot of these short poems in it, and that's supposed to come out next year. So it's hard to say what I'm working on now because I've only written three poems since then. Mm -hmm. But um, because I never write towards a book, I just write, and then one day it seems like there are enough poems. Maybe they'll have something in common. Um, but so I guess that's, I guess that's it. Just the other day I was asking myself this very question, like, well, so Carl, is this what you're going to do the rest of your life? Like write <laughs> poems and then put them into books? And it seemed, it seemed frightening. Yeah. It seemed frightening that that's my, that might be it. So I don't know. I want to move to Point Reyes forever mm -hmm. and um, just like lie on Limitor beach mm -hmm. and read books. Yeah. But I'm not sure how you do that. And like who pays you. Yep. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Independent wealth would probably help, but you know, yeah, but I don't think that's, <laughs> that's, in, the that's not in the cards. Yeah. No. So, <laughs> well, yeah. well, let's, uh, let's end it on, uh, you know, future, uh, hopeful, uh, independent wealth for you and, uh, and some, and some beach going. Yeah. Well, more poems and more you poems. Know, yeah. yeah. Cause you know, that might be all we have in the end. That's right. So. That's right. Yeah. Wonderful. Carl Phillips, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.